Well, good morning, everybody. Hey. It's like we're missing some families this morning. Be in prayer for those who are not here. And we are going to continue through the book of Samuel. I don't know how many of you have been keeping up, but hopefully all of you, except obviously for the new folks that are here this morning. Um, we've been going through the book of Samuel, and we are now, well, Sean, you were very kind to leave me like the last little bit at the end of that chapter. Thank you for that. <laughs> so we're looking at chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 through 17. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 through 17. And yes, I'm reading of the KJV. Not a KJV only guy, but I do love my King James Version. It's what I broke my teeth on, and I just can't really... I, I like... There's some other versions that are good, but this is particularly, as you all know, my favorite. So, <clears throat> Verse 15 reads, And Samuel judged all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit of Bethel and Gilgal, in Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning. Lord, we're so grateful for the precious blood of Christ. Lord, we just humbly come before you this morning, Lord. As the scriptures inform us that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't have to cower. We don't have to worry about being pierced through at the bottom of the mountain. Lord, we don't have to worry about our lives being taken from us when we come into the Holy of Holies. As they did in the Old Testament. But now, Lord, we can come because of Christ. We have confidence because of Christ. And Lord, I look to you this morning that you would give me the ability, Lord, um, to proclaim your word that would honor and glorify your son. I pray that you'd open the hearts of your people today that, Lord, we would want to hear what you would have to say from your word to us this morning, including myself, Lord. That you would grant us this, Lord, that you would give us the ability, give us the ears to hear. Open our hearts, Lord. Let us receive the word, Lord, and its power, Lord. I ask God that the Holy Spirit be present today, Lord, that you would add unction not only to my preaching, but also, Lord, that you would work with your people today, that we can grow more, Lord, we can grow more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on the circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. I would like to break down our passages into three parts this morning, highlighting the, the calling ministry of Samuel, and how these texts are relevant to us as believers in Christ. But before we look into this particular ministry of Samuel, let us first look quickly at what led up to this. We must remember that this portion of Samuel's ministry 
was installed after Samuel leads the nation of Israel to repentance. The men of Kiriath-Jerim treated the Ark of the Covenant. Finally, at this point, as we know, as we've read uh, in the previous uh, chapters leading up to this point, um, the men of Kiriath-Jerim actually um, began to respect and began to honor the Lord. But yet they did not take it to the tabernacle. Instead of resting at the house of God, it was brought into the house of Abinadab. And then they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to be the watchman or the guardian of the ark of the Lord. Those of you who, who weren't here last week, we talked about uh, these primary, these functions that were established um, during this time. Um, that Eleazar he was given this uh, prominent position to um, guard, to be a guardian of God. This really was kind of an implication of being a guardian of God's truth, watching over the things of God, bringing respect and honor back to God, where God would be pleased and would give his people a heart to repent. It says in 1 Samuel uh, 7, uh, chapter two, or verse seven, or chapter seven, verse two. It says, and it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirith Jerem, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And we all know that the ark of the Lord stayed there actually not just for twenty years, but fifty years until obviously it was inaugurated uh, into the kingdom of David. Is finally installed there uh, in the temple. They had good reason to lament, by the way, because their cities were in ruins, their armies were defeated, and they were under Philistine or enemy domination, all because of what? They were not right with God. All these things have, had occurred because of their relationship with God to the point to where um, the Ark of the Lord was installed in such a place to where they could actually see it to the point where they began to lament for it. They began to miss the presence of God. They began to see um, what they no longer had, what was stolen from them, how it was recovered, and where it was placed. And now it was positioned in a position to where they could see it, where the stirring of their hearts began to lament, and they began to call and cry out, to the name of the Lord. So then Samuel preaches repentance to all the house of Israel, saying, if you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts and put away the strange gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines, which he did. And it says, so the children of Israel put away the Baals or the Baals and the Ashtaroths and they serve the Lord only. And then we see that the nation repents here at Mitzpah. And Samuel said, Gather all of Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. See the intercession now of Samuel coming uh, before God and interceding for his people. And the Bible says that they fasted that day and said that we have sinned against the Lord. This is always a great indication that true biblical repentance has occurred when someone realizes and recognizes that they have sinned against God. This wasn't some little mistake or a little regret or something that they did that they saw was wrong. But this is really a crime committed against deity, committed against God himself. And until you realize that reality, you'll never come to true biblical repentance. We know that even David, when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, we know his words, I believe one of his last words were that he knew that he had sinned against 
God and him only. And then we see in uh, verses 8 and 9, Samuel prays for the nation. The nation cries out. They said, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us. And the last time Israel it was in this kind of situation, they said, it's interesting because the last time they were in this situation, they said, let's get the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle with us. Then we can't lose. And now, as it seems, they are much wiser before the Lord. And instead of trusting in the Ark or some medallion, uh, or some rabbit's foot type of relic to save them from battle. Um, they did the right thing. They did the right thing. They were provoked to do what? Not just to go get some ornament, you know, some talisman that they thought would somehow deliver them out of their issues and deliver them from their enemies. Um, they asked Samuel to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us. Uh, there's, a similar, there's a similar story in Deuteronomy um, Chapter 4 and 5, at Mount Sinai, when the Lord asked Moses to gather the people to him so that they could hear his words in order to learn and to fear him. As the people of Israel assembled to hear the divine truths, they became afraid. And when they heard the voice of the Lord from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, it says, So the people stood at a distance while all the heads of their tribes and their elders came near to Moses in order to urge what? Him to serve as a covenant mediator between God and his people, which we see a picture of Christ. This is where we see Christ high and lifted up as the perfect mediator between God and man. Then it goes on to say, The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, Moses said to the people. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what these people said to you. Everything they said was good. Why was it good? Because it pointed to Christ. Which brings us back to our text this morning. Looking at the formation and ministry of Samuel and its application to us today as the people of the living God. First I look at I want to look at how Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Number 2, how Samuel went from year to year on a circuit. And number 3, how Samuel returned to Ramah. Extremely important as it applies to our lives as well as believers. Let's look at point one. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Now let's just let that sink in before we just fly past it and get on with the message. Just I want you to think about this for just one moment. Samuel judged Israel, not just a few days here and there, not when he felt like it, not when it could fit it into his schedule. Not a part of his schedule, but the scripture seems to show that this was his primary function. He was totally devoted, totally loyalty, loyal to God. Because the Bible says that he judged Israel, not just a few days of his life, but all the days of his existence on this planet. In other words, his entire existence was encapsulated with the call of God. This is what he was designed for. This was his purpose. This is why he was here. And until not turning this into a humanistic self-help message, but let's just be clear about this. The reality is true for us as well. Until we find that groove in which God has called us specifically, we'll find ourselves functioning in a way that could almost be dysfunctional. And this is why it's equally as important for us to understand that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. 
That was his calling. That was his purpose. This is what God had called him to do. We can say it, we, we, can, we can sum it up like this. Samuel finished well. Samuel finished well. Samuel was the promised son, as we know, as we have read, of Hannah. And let us not forget her life and her testimony and, and, and her dedication. She prayed and agonized for a child. At one point, the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 13, that Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. This is agony, brothers and sisters. This is someone crying out to the Lord to such an extent that you just literally lose uh, the ability to formulate structured sentences. It's really just this utterance out to God. It's groanings uh, to God because... She was in such a place of agony, and I hate to use the word despair because the believers, the people of God, are never fully in despair. Even at moments, we feel like we're in despair. And after her persecution from Penina and just the whole idea of her life and what her life presented to the public as being married to Elkanah and how her life really you know, looked like it was at a standstill, why in the world aren't you having any children? What's wrong with you? You know, doesn't God bless you? Isn't this about the covenant blessing of Abraham? Shouldn't you be, um, you know, scattering the promises of God throughout the earth? I mean, this is the kind of reality um, that she was had to put up with. And not only that, she had to put up with the arrogance of other people condemning her and criticizing her every time she went up to offer um, in the temple. She had to put up with this, this, this reality of this antagonizing person. And, you know, we don't know because we can only speculate, but this kind of image, you know, that, that women that were barren had to put up with. And even today, a lot of times, even in, in our present situation today, there's still a lot of that kind of stuff that floats around where someone will be um, villainized for um, different, you know, errors in their life, or maybe they can't have children or, or whatever it may be. Um, we have to understand God's sovereignty in all of this because it was ultimately at the end of the day, it was really God who limited her ability to have children and not because of her sin, not at all, but because of the fact that God is sovereign and he was doing a great work in her heart. And it was, what was it causing her to do? Think about that for just a moment. What was that driving her to do? It was driving her to her knees to such an extent, her prayers didn't even make sense to the high priest. Come on, what's wrong with that? Haven't you ever seen a real prayer before? Oh, wait a minute. Eli, who lived the majority of his life in apathy, rebellious sons, right? Who made a mockery of the word of God, made a mockery of the temple services, made a mockery how they functioned in worship, right? And here we go. No wonder you don't understand what true worship looks like. And there it is displayed. But what do you do? You could accuse her of being drunk. Maybe your sons are drunk. She's not drunk. Okay? She's in a place probably where you've never been. And you're the high priest. And she's some persecuted woman. Okay? In that time. So put yourself in her shoes. And what comes out of this life? It's not because she has any merit or value. But because God in his sovereignty blesses her with a child. And I'm going to tell you something right now. When someone is, is, is provoked to that kind of lifestyle, where you see that kind of holiness, that kind of living, 
And that kind of like brokenness, someone that drives and will do anything for the Lord to such an extent where they'll devote, they will devote what God, they've been longing for, longing for to such an extent, if it wasn't for the grace of God, they would fall into complete pieces. But God gives her what she wants. He gives her a baby boy. And what does she do? She gives it back. She devotes him. As the Bible says, she donates him back to God. Just goes to show you the heart of this woman and where she stood, right? It's just an amazing thing. And here you see the expression of her life being manifested through Samuel. You see this happening. And then it's like, wow, you know. This is really, as we can say, this is about a mom who is invested in the Lord. Not because she was greater than anybody else, but because she was driven to such an extent where she would do anything to give the Lord back a son. Isn't that crazy? I mean, think about that. Well, how would we behave? We'd probably stop praying since we got what we wanted, right? Stop praying. And, you know, just soak it all in, right? And then have a spirit of entitlement. I deserve this, you know? I've been in pain and agony for so long. I deserve it. Well, no, you don't deserve it. It's all by the hand of a gracious and loving God that knows better than you do but allowing these things into your life at its own time, okay? It's interesting because you look at the name Samuel. Okay, that's how we say it in English, but the, 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 it really would be pronounced Shem-U-L, which Shem comes from the word Shema, right? Which means hear, and his last is El, God, right? Shema, God is what his name actually means. Well, the name can be interpreted as God has heard. And who did God hear? God heard Hannah's prayer. So what does she do? Inevitably, she names her son Shem-U-L, which God heard my prayer and he is the manifestation of a life told she her devotion didn't stop after she got samuel her devotion is increased her devotion increased this is usually how you can see because let me just say this real quick and i'll move on just because you have a lot of stuff given to you doesn't mean it's a qualified blessing from god some of those things can be a curse in malachi it, it, god says i'll bless i'll curse your blessings Sometimes just because you have money or you got that check in the mail doesn't mean that that was... No, don't get me wrong here. They're blessings of God. But also sometimes those things don't always mean that you're more blessed than somebody else because you have a fat bank account and the other person is poor as can get poor. I'm not preaching a poverty gospel, but what I'm saying is is that we can't judge things necessarily externally, especially in the case with Hannah. Samuel's life was a manifestation of the life of his praying mother. His dedication as well as a beautiful sign of the legacy a parent can have on a child. Now, I don't want to go too far there because we all know, if you've studied this, the, these books, you know that Samuel's children did what? They apostatized, right? He was a godly man, right? He reflected his mother's love and devotion, right? What happened to his kids? You know what I mean? They turned out like uh, Eli's kids. You know, I mean, they were shameful. So just because you're a godly man or a woman or a godly parent doesn't mean your kids are all going to follow in your footsteps. Okay, they can all apostatize. And it may, it's not going to necessarily be your fault. Now, you could be, uh, you know, um, derelict in your duties as a parent. 
and your children go wayward and say, oh, well, God is sovereign. That's ridiculous. It's true God's sovereign, but you're derelict. God does um, have us um, operate in a certain way, right, with our families and our children, which we will get into a little bit more as we um, dive into this just a little bit deeper. Um, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He was all in. He was fully devoted. He was committed. He was committed. And that's usually the difference between whether or not a person is, um, I'm not saying if the person is truly called because I can't judge another person's calling. I don't even, not even try. But I'm saying usually a good telltale sign is when someone's called that they're all in, they're committed, they're devoted to what they're doing. This is why it's such a, um, it's such a gross sin when you see um, people called into a called into what we call a ministry, and they're lazy, or they just don't they don't they don't they don't fulfill what the ministry requires of them. It could be pastoral, it could be whatever. But the reality is, when you're called into something, a sure sign you've been called into that is you will meet the demands of that ministry with the enablement of the Spirit of God. You you you, you do it in the flesh. Guess what? You're going to burn out. You're going to crash, you're going to sizzle, and you're going to fail. Because why? You're running on your own, your own strength. You're running on your own strength. As Paul reiterated in 1 Timothy 4, or 1.12, excuse me, when he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has, what? Enabled me. Because he has counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. He wasn't self-appointed, he was put into ministry. 2 Timothy 1.12 says this, which is why, he says, is the reason I suffer. That's usually a good indication that you've been called to ministry because you suffer. Some of these people that get into ministry and all you see is them driving around in fancy cars and buying mansions and all of that. I mean, hey, I don't have any problem. I don't think the Bible has any problem with someone having money. Nothing wrong with that. But there's also a point to where we are to um, fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. And that comes along with the calling, the truly called. You're truly called. That call is going to manifest not in just the blessings falling on you wherever you turn around. But usually sometimes it's the opposite. It's the opposite. It's like, what in the world? You know, Lord, you called me to ministry. My church isn't growing or whatever. People aren't getting one to the Lord like I like to see happen. I, I, I can't pay my bills. I mean, but one thing after another. And I don't want to say that someone's, you know, they're, not, they're neglecting their responsibilities. They can suffer in areas where they're sinning. Okay, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But also, true biblical ministry will bring about suffering. It will bring about rejection. It will bring about, and at sometimes, even scandal, unfortunately. I mean, some of these guys that fall into scandals, as Samuel, you know, he, 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 he made it through a pristine record. Some, got, some of these ministers, they fall. This day and age is a reproach. Uh, they, they blaspheme God. But the point is, <clears throat> is that the ministry is tough if it's truly called by God. <clears throat> In 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul said this, which I pray that we'll all be able to say. He says this, you know, first he talked about which is why I suffer in one twelve, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until the day that has been entrusted to me. Second Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. Okay, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And what? I have kept the faith. Okay, this is really an indication that you are truly 
Um, I'm not saying, and I want to just clear up something really quick because the whole idea of ministry sometimes gives people a license to sin or hide behind this idea that I have a ministry when in reality, once you come to Christ, you are in ministry. Okay, so I knew a friend of mine. He said he grew up his entire life. His dad worked soup kitchens. He would go out daily, work full time. He'd go out to the poor and the outcast and the needy. And he had a soup kitchen. He would feed them. He would pray for them. He was just like a superhero Christian. But when he would come home, he would never pray with his family. It said the, the, My friend said, my dad never prayed with me. He'd pray with everybody else. He would feed everybody else out there. He was a superhero out there in ministry. But when he came home, he neglected his family. He never prayed with me once. And all I heard him do is yell at my mom. So it was hypocrisy. It was like, wow, ministry. You know, some of us are so intoxicated with the idea of being in ministry. We think some, getting a title or some kind of, it's a trophy to us where we can somehow hide behind it and feel like we're affirmed. Like this adds credibility to me and makes me something. It's a badge of honor. and It's a mark that God's using me, not only from me to him, but for everybody else to take notice of me because I've got some kind of, you know, affirmation here to make everybody, you know, I've got a ministry. Been wanting a ministry, but your greatest ministry where? as we'll see, is in your home. Nothing wrong with being called to ministry. Nothing wrong with having things that recognize you as being in ministry or whatever. Those are all wonderful things, but they're not a cover-up to compensate for your lack at home, okay? I've seen a lot of that. I've been in, I've been in street ministry and open-air preaching for what? I was in it for almost 13 years, and I saw it all the time. You know, um, people come out and they want to be the best open-air preacher, and full-time minister, but their their family, you know, suffers and becomes their their basically their floor in order to become successful which is really um, not good ministry isn't easy you know so some of the judges most of them ended their ministry early in disgrace but Samuel did finish well and we need to really recognize this reality that this was a con- this was a consuming factor of his life. He was called into it. It wasn't just a ministry that he got, you know, and he's just going to be like, I'm just going to pamper this ministry because this ministry has become my identity, right? No, Christ is your identity, not your ministry. He didn't make it his ministry his identity. God was his identity. Ministry just flowed out of his relationship with Christ or with God. And it was Christ. I mean, ultimately, um, it brings us to our second point as we're moving through this hopefully somewhat quick. He went from year to year on a circuit. So he labored. He worked. Okay, there was, there was work here. He, didn't, he was productive. Many, many times we can find ourselves busy, but we're not productive. You know, well, I'm just busy. I'm busy for the Lord. I'm busy for the Lord. You know, no, you just move a lot. You move around, you know, but productivity comes from making your time and utilizing your time for the glory of Christ. Every ounce of that, in which we all fail, but really, it's really, our lives, are, we're not here for ourselves. We're not on this planet. God created us. He knew when we were going to be here. He knew how he, he formed us in the womb. Okay, it was his timing and his purpose is why we're here. We exist for the glory of God. This is why we were on this planet and have a heartbeat is for him. 
until he's done using us for his glory and for his will. It says he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah and judged Israel in those places. Obviously, those were the southern areas, I believe the tribe of Benjamin, where he was basically had his ministry as a locality. It wasn't too far, but it was areas where people were, would come and they would gather, and he'd be able to judge them and, and be able to deal with their issues at the time. And it said that... Um, you know, he really worked as a circuit judge is really what he was. And every year, Sammy worked hard to go all about Israel to help settle disputes and promote righteousness. And I'd like to point out the flexible nature of Samuel's ministry as well. Um, these centers, it is observable, were all situated in the southern part of the land in the tribe of Benjamin. And these sites were considered <clears throat> holy places. These places mentioned as the centers where Samuel judged were basically all holy sites and at different periods of the year no doubt were crowded with pilgrims from different parts of the land and samuel's activity as the great prophet judge is now seen he had a blessed circuit of ministry which has spiritual lessons for us first let's look at real quick as we speed through this he first visited bethel what does that mean we've all read the scriptures right what does bethel mean it means the house of god Right? The house of God. Remember, as you look at Israel, look at this whole story, this whole event that has taken place so far. What's going on? First and foremost, it's right in his circuit. The same pattern follows his circuit. What's the first thing? Bethel. Judgment first came to the house of God, didn't it? First it came to the house of God. When Jacob was obedient to the divine call, he was told to arise and go up unto Bethel. He buried the strange gods the household gods under the oak of Shechem. So the evil things must be put away. And this is the first thing. Get rid of your Ashtaroths. Get rid, rid of your Baals. Get rid of these things. Okay, but this is the first thing. Judgment always comes to the house of God first. So in his circuit, he followed this pattern. But thou was first. Why? Because judgment came first to the house of God. Then we see he came to where? Gilgal. What does Gilgal mean? It means, the word means rolling or to roll away. And we see here that the reproach of Egypt, as we saw in Joshua 5, was rolled away. And this is what is going on here. We see first, you know, he goes to Bethel, then Gilgal. We see first the judgment comes to the house of God. Then we see what happens. Our sin. After we repent of our sin, put our sin away in Christ. You know, we now turn to this fact of it's rolling away. And this is what we need to be freed from the world, dead to it, and the world dead to us. Then we see Mitzpah, which means watchtower, which was basically his third station, his third point here. And this basically points to our constant need to be on our guard and watch against the foe, as well as look upward and forward from Mitzpah to the blessed home where he and his family, which he shall surely share with him. And this is represented, it goes from Mitzvah, which is the third station, which is united. You need to watch. Okay, you need to watch. You need to, you need to look against, you need to watch out for the, for the foe. Why? Why all the watching? Why all the guardianship here? What's going on? So we can watch. Why? So it liberates us to look where? It liberates us to look to Rhema. And Rhema is represented, what does Rhema mean? It means heights and it means exalted. And this is where Samuel had his home. This is where everything functioned. 
This was his hub. This was his headquarters. This is where everything came from. This is where Samuel's ministry flowed from, was his home. And it's really powerful. He studied it, you know, into depth. It's really amazing. Um, Samuel was actually, you know, was the first and greatest of all prophets, a man besides Christ, obviously, and a man chosen to close the order of the judges and inaugurate the government of the kings. Within these two bookends, we see him operating in many capacities and functions, but always remember the same calling. Many different capacities, many different functions, being flexible in what God has called you to do. Wait a minute here. The, the, the Ark of the Lord, okay, Shiloh had been destroyed by the Philistines, so there was nothing there. So what are we going to do? It hadn't been inaugurated into the kingdom of David. It hadn't been brought back to Jerusalem yet. So we've got our Ark up, in the, up on a hill, right? But we had to be flexible. And then he had the local areas that he, that he was called to be a circuit. He was flexible in his calling. And we have to understand this. We have to understand this. We need to be all in. You know, we need to dedicate our entire existence to the things of God. But number two, we have to understand, you know, that um, this calling came with differences. <clears throat> Are you willing? Listen, <clears throat> have you started in one place in ministry before? And then it seemed like the Lord is directing you <clears throat> into another area. And you're like, wait a minute. This isn't what I've been called to do. This is like, like I, for, for, for an example, church planning. I was a street preacher for years. I traveled. I never had any intentions on being a pastor of a church. But the Lord says to be flexible in what I have called you to do. I'm giving you the command. I decide what ministry is. I decide where you go. And you follow me. You do as I say. And that's exactly what happens here. He learns to function on God's terms. Okay? And things have been changed. The functionality of his ministry had changed. Does it mean it's any less important? No. It just functions in a different arena. And this is for us as the people of God. We've got we've to be okay with that. We've got to be okay with making changes. I mean, look at, I mean, in, in 1 Samuel 15, when, 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 when Samuel called Saul um, to, when, when Samuel called out King Saul and said, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but both kill man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, and he didn't do it, what happens? Now you see Samuel functioning even in another realm of a magistrate. It says here that he hacked Agog in pieces before the Lord. A lot of you pacifists would never like that. Right? But there you go. He hacked him to peace. I mean, if that's what it says. I mean, this is like you just making something up to make it sound better. This actually, he hacked him to pieces. Imagine functioning in that realm. Give me that sword. I'll show you how it's supposed to be done. Just, you know, he didn't just stab the guy. He hacks him to pieces. Man, what's wrong with you? It's morbid, right? But that's what God had called him to do, and he did it. And he operated, and he stopped. It was functioning in an area of ministry that he knew he had, but it, things change. And he was willing to operate in that realm. After Israel's repentance, things changed, or at least functioned in a way that was acceptable to God until David's reign. For example, the ark was permitted to be placed in an area at that time, and it wasn't its proper place. We got to understand that. The priesthood was not operating as well. Eleazar, who came from a priestly line, didn't operate as a priest, but as a protector. 
The ark would stay in Kiriath-Jerim for 50 years until it was brought to Jerusalem and remained there to the time of David's kingdom. And then it was finally brought into its proper place. It wasn't in its proper place. And maybe your ministry isn't the proper ministry that you thought that you should do. Maybe God is changing you to be flexible, to operate in that realm for his glory. We must be willing to do that. He went from year to year in a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Gilgal and Mitzvah, and judge Israel in all those places. Brings us to the third and last point. He always returned to Ramah. He always returned home. Ramah was his home, as we all, we all know. It says, but he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he judged Israel. And not only that, he built an altar unto the Lord. You see, everything we do in life radiates from home. You understand that? You have to understand that, because I need to understand that as well. Nothing's going to make sense in your life as far as ministry is concerned if you don't have things in order at the house, right? I didn't say perfect. I said functioning in a way that you are moving towards and you're pressing in to glorifying God and do what's pleasing to Him. And that may be a different path and a longer path for each and every one of us. So we don't want to slam each other as we're moving in those realms. Horatius Bonar, if you guys are familiar with him, uh, he was a phenomenal Scottish theologian. He wrote this. Now, let me finish. The word family is a sacred one, he says. Even among the children of the world, there is a hallowed tenderness about it, which few, save the wickedness, the wickedest, do not feel in some measure. He goes on to say, one of their poets has thus expressed the feeling beneath the foulest mother's curse. No living thing can thrive. A mother is a mother still, the holiest thing alive. Now, obviously, he says it right here. I am by no means in accord with the sentiment contained in these words, saying that the mother is not the holiest thing alive. But from a perspective and a principle, the world even knows the importance of a, of a home, right? The importance of a mom and dad, right? We, the, these things are still, ultimately, at the end of the day, Things that bless, right? Things that are, are going to work out. Even if you're a worldly person, they recognize. I mean, I don't know how many times you guys probably can, can attest. You've been out on the street, you're talking to somebody. And the moment you met, you mentioned their grandma or you mentioned something about their grandma praying for them or something, they literally sober up real quick because everybody knows the home. Everybody understands mom and dad, right? Everybody gets that picture of home. And it's the high place, right? It's the place where outside of the local church starts in the home, a biblical government, all these things start in the, starts with an individual. We practice self-government, which we can't obtain without Christ. Then it's the home, right? And then it's the church, right? And then we, then we go out into the world. But if these things are out of place, like you're a wreck in the home, and then you don't go to, you don't even have a church you go to. You have no like spiritual authority over your life holding you accountable. You're kind of like a, a maverick and you have no accountability. You're kind of all over the place. Your, your life's going to be a disaster. I don't care how many little uh, ministry name tags you have on. It ain't going to make anything. You know, this whole parachurch stuff. Excuse me, I'm not trying to put anyone down for that. But I mean, I was a parachurch ministry for a long time. I don't see God needing any help from a ministry for his local church. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this reality is true. You know, God doesn't need a help from another ministry to come alongside the church. 
You know, the church doesn't need its help. What the church needs is your humility. Repent, get under the local church, get under some authority, and have a biblical ministry that functions with oversight, right? And accountability. But they don't want accountability. They want to do it on their own, and they want to come back and fight the church, which is completely obnoxious, and we see it all the time. And it says he returned to Ramah, which he returned home, and there he built an altar, an altar, sorry, <clears throat> under the Lord to offer what? Sacrifice, and the sacrifices of the people, either by himself or by a priest. When the people came to have justice to minister to them or to desire him to pray for them, teach and instruct them, or to give them advice, that was the place. Shiloh obviously was destroyed, and no place was appointed for the tabernacle and altar. The Jews say high places for a private altar were lawful, and even for one that was not a priest to offer. These things, though settled by law, yet were for a time dispensed with under the things could be fixed in their proper place in order. God allowed it. You want to know why? You want to know why? Because, because worship isn't all external. Yes, there's an external reality, but where does the external come from? Where does it come from? It comes from the heart, right? Ministry's always been about the heart, your heart towards God. It has always been about the functionality of a system that's around you it's the functionality of a heart that's right with God. God's okay with you putting the ark of the Lord up in the mountains if your heart is right towards him and you're operating in true biblical repentance and love for God and do what's pleasing in his sight. You get everything all set up perfectly outward, you know what I mean? And totally the presence of God literally walks away from you or gets stolen from you. Have every all the pieces together and be an abomination but yet have all the pieces scattered all over the place. Everything looks like a mess, but everything's in perfect order with you and God. That's a beautiful thing. And there he built an altar. And this is where, you know, he, he spent his time, you know, ministering and offering up sacrifices for sin. And we know that obviously it points to the beautiful covenant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know in 1 Samuel 7 3, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your what? All your law keeping? He didn't say that. With all your perfection? He didn't say that. With your, you know, everything together? He said, No, return with all your hearts. Return with your heart to me, is what he says. Samuel called the nation to repentance. The repentance had to be inward, he says, with all your hearts, and outward, what happened to happen? They had to put away their, their, their strange gods. When you're right on the inside, outwardly, you'll be putting away your strange gods. Okay, you're removing your, your, your things that you cling to that offend God. Um, Psalm 51, 6 says, Behold, you desire truth where? In your in, innermost being. That's right. John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. True biblical worship. Was it on that mountain? Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? Jesus corrects it very quickly. He says, no. It's here. It's, that's where true worship is. Obviously, we know we have local churches. We know that was what Christ was talking about. He's talking about a relationship towards God doesn't determine how well we have things set up around us. Um, Matthew Poole, the, the, the commentator, says it was unlawful to build another altar for sacrifices besides 
the tabernacle. Deuteronomy chapter 12, um, 5 through 13 talks about, no, you can't just do things your own way. You can't set things up your own way. And then he answers the question by saying, um, this was in part excused by the confusion of those times wherein the tabernacle and its altar were destroyed and is most probable, but most fully because this was done by prophetic inspiration and divine dispensation as appears by God's approbation and acceptance of the sacrifices offered upon it. You shall love the Lord your God, what? With all of your heart, all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Jesus repeated that in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, reflecting Deuteronomy 6, 5. So what is our application today? As we close, our application, what can we take home with us today? If you're going to remember something, what would be the key things? You're not going to remember all of it. Obviously, no one, no one can. But what thing is going to leave a mark on you this morning? Let's just go this way. He judged Israel all the days of his life, okay? He was devoted. God, God wants us to be a devoted people. And the question you could ask yourself this morning is, are you devoted? Are you devoted? Not devoted to ministry. Not devoted to preaching. Okay? Not devoted to a soup kitchen. But you're devoted to Christ. Are you devoted to your family? Okay? Ask yourself that question. Be honest with you. I mean, you don't have to say anything, but in your heart, say, you know, maybe you need to do what Hannah did this morning. You know, pray quietly to the Lord. God, I'm sorry. I repent. I need correction in these areas. I've failed miserably. Listen, I, I, I pray that for myself, you know. I fail miserably. I need God to help me constantly, help me be more devoted. Um, in these areas. Be faithful and committed. Number two, be flexible with where God's put you. Don't complain and start throwing your degrees in people's faces. Just say, Lord, if this is where you have me to be, this is where I'm going to be. And I'm going to prosper because I'm going to quietly humble to what you've called me to do. I'll arrange my life, Lord, however you want me to arrange it for your glory. I'm only here for a short period anyway. Does it really matter? If you get all of these accolades from the world, what's the profit of man if he gains the whole world? All the attention, all the money, all the fame, and you lose your soul. What, what's the point? You know, be flexible with what God's called you to do. He went from year to year on a circuit. Be flexible and be willing to be used in whatever capacity the Lord would have you to be. And do it quietly and godly. Don't complain about it and murmur and be bitter and backbite and all that stuff. Understand the last point. Understand the value of, you know, Samuel understood the value of his home. So much so he built an altar there. He didn't build an altar in those other areas. It really doesn't say he did, so I can only speculate. But um, C.T. Studd, the famous missionary, said, the light that shines the farthest shines brightest near home. The light that shines in our public life will be greatly determined by whether or not our light is shining in our private life. Can those in your home testify to seeing the light of Christ in you? Do I dare ask? So these are things that we need to really contemplate this morning before we leave. You know, these are things you want to ask yourself. You know? I mean, you can fool everybody here. You can come in and, and, and do the thing and fool and talk the talk and do all that, but... You know, your family knows the truth about you, don't they?
your kids and your wife, my wife and my kids know the truth about me, right? Don't you dare go over and ask. Don't, don't you dare ask them. Okay, I will find you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, te- I'm teasing, I'm teasing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is true. Many of you have been in my home, right? You've seen us operate, not perfectly, but we're all striving together as a church, right? We're all working together for these things. But let's remember these things. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, thank you for the little flock, Lord. Thanks, thank you that we're here. Um, what may seem insignificant to the world, who cares? may seem insignificant to American evangelicalism. Who cares? Lord, we're here to worship and to serve you because we know time is short. Lord, give us a holy devotion, a holy devotion that would say, you know what? I'm putting these things aside. These other things are getting in the way. These strange gods in my life, I'm getting rid of them. I'm sick and tired of being ensnared by these garbagey things that are taking up the fruitful reality of my giftedness, my skill set, whatever that may be, for the glory of Christ. I'm dying to them today. And I'm willing to be flexible. I'm willing to be moved around. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. It may be a toilet. Fine with that. That's what you want, Lord. That's what honors you. That's what pleases you. I'm happy with that. I don't need to have a a, a big badge of honor up here. Um, and, And number three, Lord, that we would, you know, we'd always be... Um, worshiping you and we always understand the value value of our homes Lord and even Jonathan Edwards said that the great awakening began in the devotions of people's homes uh, Lord so we just bless you we ask you to remind us of these things convict us of these things cause us to repent of these things and to get right with you in Jesus name Amen, amen. amen.